We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back, Karen. Thanks, Craig <laughs> and Courtney. It's yeah. great to be back. Yeah, no, it's. I'm trying to think when it was last year. It might have been around August or September. Yeah, or I think right. you were our first person that we interviewed as well. Oh wow! Yeah, that's exciting. yeah, first <laughs> guest. Exciting first guest. So <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> it didn't scare you off, which is nice. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Last time we spoke, uh, you were talking about a project that I think you were kind of at the start of embarking on, which was the Safer Schools... Thoughtful Schools Project. Thoughtful Schools Project. Um, Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of what that project is for people who may not have caught the first episode? Sure. Um, It's basically uh, encouraging and supporting schools to be trauma-informed. And to be trauma-informed is to understand the impact of trauma and adversity on behaviour. And we've got increasing evidence now that demonstrates how uh, trauma and stress affect uh, the brain uh, and that there's many children who have issues emotionally with emotional regulation um, because of their experiences as a child. So we're sort of asking schools to incorporate that knowledge into their policies and their practices um, and supporting the schools with strategies to help them become trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. Is there already something in place with schools that addresses trauma or is this like a, a brand new thing for WA? Mm, WA schools are already um, doing a lot in trauma-informed practice. There's um, quite a few programs that are being used Um And some of them are really good. What we wanted was to offer the schools something that's quite simple to implement and not too heavy on time commitment, being aware of how busy schools are at the moment. So we, um, to develop the program, we actually looked at the existing trauma-informed practice programs and we extracted the most common themes that came through um, with those programs and we ended up with basically trauma-informed practice principles And so we're encouraging schools to align their policies and practices with these trauma-informed practice principles. Um, So that was the idea and the concept that actually got it started, just to give schools that guidance and advice as to what a trauma-informed school looks like. Mm -hmm. And so these... um other programs that have been set up previously, where, where were they implemented and how did they come about? A lot of them um, originated from America. Um, so uh, we haven't had many um, originate in Australia, although we do have a few from um, mainly uh, over the eastern states. Um, some of the programs are quite expensive to implement, but I think one of the um, downsides of the existing programs is that they haven't been evaluated or they have been evaluated but not independently. Or mm. um, And the other thing is they, a lot of the programs come in, deliver a session or a few sessions and then um, the schools need to change based on that. And what we were hearing from the schools is that they want uh, more support that's ongoing. So they want some coaching. So what we've... Uh, decided is to uh, give the schools the trauma-informed practice principles and uh, we've done a review of the literature and identified strategies that are evidence-informed to support schools reaching each principle. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've also got expert-informed strategies because there's actually not a whole load of evidence around these types of concepts. So uh, we have a group of about 50 experts who uh, understand trauma and understand the impact of trauma on kids in schools. And so we've got some of their expertise. The other thing about the principles I think is really positive or our model and, and um, program is that 
With the principles, we sent them out for international review by experts in this field um, doing what's called a Delphi survey where we asked them for their feedback about what they thought of the principles, whether or not they should be in a specific order to be obtained by the schools. And we also um, asked them just to rate how important these principles were and all the school, um, all the experts, sorry, rated the principles as important or very important. So we retained them all and we added another one um, about um, ensuring the school, uh, the school's ethos incorporates the experiences of the First Nation people on the mm. land on which um, the school sits and we think that's a really important principle. Mm. And that's international. So we use the word First Nation because we think that applies wherever um, a school is situated uh, regardless of um, whether or not it's in Australia. So we're hoping eventually that um, these principles could be used outside of Australia. So just uh, to give people a bit of background, I know you discussed it in the last podcast, but could you tell us, explain to us what trauma is and maybe give a few examples or a couple of examples of how, what common types of trauma occur in, in schools? Sure. I think people think the word trauma is reserved for experiences which create post-traumatic stress disorder. And people usually think of war or um gunshot violence or um, experiences that are quite severe as being trauma. And they certainly are, and they impact people very negatively sometimes. Um, But for some people, they manage to have what's called post-traumatic growth, where they um, work through the trauma they've experienced. But there's also trauma that can um, come from experiences such as Uh, domestic violence in the home um, perpetrated by a father or a mother or both or relatives, Um, sexual violence, um, sexual assault. Uh, Also neglect can be quite traumatic for children and people often ask me why and I sort of say if you're an eight-year-old and you're left by yourself all night, then you're living in a bit of fear. And that does happen. We know that there are children who um, don't have uh, the sorts of environments that are healthy for them to grow up in. Um, And so we also use the word adversity. So, um, you know, which is very similar in that adversity is basically uh, adverse experience that you may have as a child that uh, when you have multiple adverse experiences, your risks of developing um, uh, physical illness and mental illnesses are much higher. Mm. Yeah, and so this trauma or um, adversity doesn't have to be physical either. So, yeah, like the neglect um, and I guess what I was kind of thinking of is if you leave a kid and parents go to work early and they don't see them in the morning, then the kid has to walk to school and then they've got no friends at school. All of that can build up loneliness and and those thoughts kind of go in their head and I Mm. reckon that could also contribute to... Um, someone experiencing trauma without having the physical aspects there. So, Absolutely. And um, a lot of this concept of, of trauma-informed practice comes from um, the attachment theory and that if your parents are not giving you unconditional love and supporting you and providing you with... Um, the emotional input you need to become a healthy adult, then that can create uh, very negative behaviours and also um, emotions for children and as they grow into young people and adults. And that's something that we want to try and help uh, shift is the perception of these young people about themselves and help them to understand that it's not their fault um, that the the way they have been treated or what they have experienced, and that could be a um, a natural disaster. Uh, it's not their fault that they've been impacted or that they've experienced that, and that um, the school we want them to feel safe at school, and that they are nurtured in the school environment, and there's people that care about them. One of the biggest problems, I think, about trauma and its impact for many children is that they find it difficult to emotionally regulate. And because of that, 
Uh, there's this automatic concept that they're naughty children and that can be built um, within the system and um, from the time they enter kindy or even early childhood and um, as they progress through school, uh, they're labelled or um, constantly punished for their behaviour, yet a lot of these children... uh, need um, a nurturing environment and to be understood uh, and guidance and help on how to emotionally regulate and that's vitally important. And so what is it about schools in particular that why is that an area of focus for you? Um, Because kids obviously have a lot of things that go into their upbringing including family life and and their peers and whatnot. So why is it schools that that you're uh, targeting? I think it's the universal um, approach to bringing up our children is through our schooling system. And it's actually more difficult to reach families than to change um, how children are nurtured within our community. And that expression, I always use it, it takes a village to raise a child, is is so important. And um, one of the a good way of trying to disrupt intergenerational trauma is to try and help stop these children becoming um, violent or neglectful adults. And if we can do that while they're at an early age, then we have a much better chance of um, interfering with that pathway that we know happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you often hear of the school-to-prison pipeline and um, – There are schools around Australia and internationally that have demonstrated that they can make a really good impact on children's outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so what does um, being involved with this trauma-informed program involve? Well, basically um, what we will be offering is a website which um, provides the trauma-informed practice principles and the strategies, uh, so the evidence and expert-informed strategies. Beyond that, at the moment, we have um, just commenced a pilot study of thoughtful schools throughout Western Australia, and we'll be exploring the impact um, of the program on um, the trauma-informed environment within the school, and we'll be uh, offering some coaching to schools as well as professional learning sessions um, from the experts that we have on board who really understand trauma um, and its impact on children and how schools can respond in a way that um, is trauma-informed. So we're hoping to expand the project um, nationally and we've had some interest for some from some people in Victoria um, and from Queensland. So um, at the moment I'm developing uh, an Australian plan for um, trauma-informed, promoting trauma-informed practice in schools. So it's actually really exciting and there's just so much interest in this topic we've had so many schools say they really want um, some help and support and ideas for how to become Mm trauma-informed they want to offer a positive supportive environment for children but um, it's a little bit different to how things are done right now and so that makes it um, a challenge for for many teachers and schools and school leaders So teachers have a pretty tough job yes. because teaching children requires a lot of energy. And um, and they usually see those kids every day for, <laughs> yeah. for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. That's right. And yeah. then they have to deal with the parents and, you know, yeah. it can be quite challenging. Mm. So what is this going to look like for teachers? What can they expect if they're involved in a school that mm. is part of this program? What are they going to uh, experience? I think um, the first thing is to remember that children don't change quickly especially if they have experienced trauma um, since a young age and it's um, been ongoing. So to develop a trauma-informed environment may not impact children um, uh, children's behaviour straight away. Um, and the other experience that – or the other way that children may demonstrate uh, – the outcomes of their or the impact of their trauma is through internalising behaviours like um, depression um, and self-harm. And so the idea that um, would impact that quickly is also um, a little bit unrealistic, unfortunately. But 
one of the things that I think is really important is that we encourage and support teachers to know how to respond to children's behaviours that are um, unhealthy. So when they can't regulate their emotions um, and they uh, hit out at other people, for example, or that they um, are easily upset, that we actually understand what's happening for them. Now, people think this might take a little bit more effort and energy for teachers, but it doesn't really. It just takes a different approach. And um, what is difficult, and I'm a parent and I understand that it can be difficult, is our own emotional regulation as adults. And children can be really difficult to manage. And especially, as you said, in a classroom situation where you have children <laughs> coming in day in, day out. And it's exhausting. I I admire teachers um, and the work they do. They do an amazing job and they're so well-intentioned. Um, so to try and offer schools strategies for how to avoid making children's behaviour worse um, and uh, calming children down but also ensuring that there are very clear boundaries for children. We don't – trauma-informed practice is not being permissive and I think some people – don't realise that that's one aspect of trauma-informed practice. People think it's soft, soft on kids, but it's not. It's actually having clear boundaries and guiding them to stay within those boundaries. And when they move out of those boundaries, ensuring that those children are not punished um, because that can be re-traumatising for children, um, but that they are supported in a way to change their behaviour um, and understand why they're behaving the way they do is another thing that's really important. One of the most important things I think that we can do as adults, um, no matter where we work or um, who we're teaching, I teach university students, is to reflect and think about um, something that we do within a class that may not have been ideal um, and, and think about how we might do things differently. And um, on the occasion that I've um, encountered difficult uh, children behaving um, in a difficult way, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've responded in ways that may not have been ideal and I can reflect and go, okay, well, I didn't emotionally regulate myself well. <laughs> what could I do differently in future? And I think the important thing to understand with children who've experienced trauma and adversity is that what works for healthy children is not likely to work for them. Or it may, but it often doesn't. So if you shout at a healthy child, they may stop what they're doing um, because they understand they've crossed a boundary and they're in trouble. And for that child, they can probably cop that and cope, cope with that if it's not happening too often. But for a child who've experienced um, domestic violence, for example, that shouting can escalate their behaviour. And the other thing that we always need to be aware of and careful of is publicly shaming um, or humiliating children who've experienced trauma because that can really re-traumatise children. I've got, a, I've got a bit of a story that I think kind of fits into what we're talking about here because um, I know someone who is a teacher and has been a teacher for a very, very long time um, and I'm not going to say who it is because I'm going to talk about one of the kids that they had in one of their classrooms and I don't want to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, this person used to work with both gifted and talented students and also the other end of students as well that had, there, there was a lot of misbehaviour and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think a, a really good example of where I think trauma-informed practice is useful by understanding what that student's gone through is um, this person was telling me a story about a student that they had that didn't really have many friends, um, wasn't in the gift and talent and classes, all that kind of stuff, was struggling at school, um, but they had a friend and their friend was a, a honky nut. So, yeah, so it was, <laughs> so this kid used to bring like a honky nut from a, from a tree Aww. to school every day. And what this um, teacher would do was um, because this kid was very attached to this honky nut and was basically their only friend, the honky nut would have its own seat, have its own assignments, have its own tests, but the idea was that honky nut had to do its tests along with the kid. And what happened is that kid would end up doing 
the tests and the assignments, which is something that that, never, that kid had never done before. So by being able to look at that whole situation and apply something different that obviously wouldn't work with other kids, that kid now learned something from school, mm. even though it was just bringing a honky nut to school <laughs> and having a friend that way. Um, so, yeah, like having that full understanding and being able to apply different things to different situations for kids, I feel like can really, really help them. Um, and I think that's where like your research will probably help as well. Mm. And I think it's those innovative sort of strategies or something that's a bit different that can make such a difference for children. So the child would have felt supported by the teacher and encouraged and not dismissed. And I think one of the problems I see with our Western education um, is the is the separation of gifted and talented um, who mm. may be academically better um, and who may behave better, but children who've experienced uh, trauma and adversity and can't emotionally regulate often have many gifts and talents that just aren't as obvious. Yeah. They're hidden behind these behaviours that um, make them more difficult to teach, but if we give them a, an environment in which they can flourish, we can start to identify and see some of those strengths and really encourage them and, and support them. Um, and I think uh, your example is a, a prime example of where that child could have a turnaround experience at the school and all of a sudden um, they know someone cares about them and that can be all a child needs to have a really, really positive impact on their lives. And that's where your your principles, I guess, are trying to kind of create this universal, universal structure around being able to support kids that have experienced all sorts of different things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's a few things that to unpack out of all that, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, so the gifted and talented idea of them separating gifted and talented kids out, we know that academic performance is very closely linked to socioeconomic status. Yeah. So essentially what you're doing is biasing the results of schools in favour of those who come from wealthier backgrounds. I would say yes and no, but that's also because I know someone that works in gifted and talented and I know that the viewpoint can be a little bit different depending on the school and depending on what's I, happening. I think but if, we, if we look across the general, population, yeah. yeah, and I think you'll be able to find exceptions that prove the yeah. rule. Yeah, definitely. But overall, and I, I think the schools that, that – put a bit more emphasis on some of the non-mainstream activities, the arts, mm -hmm. and those types of things probably uh, benefit kids maybe from lower socioeconomic backgrounds a bit more. And I think that's what you're talking about. It's about finding what that kid relates to and where they can connect and find common ground with the teacher. And they and can apply that to the rest of their school and be life. And because I think their social backgrounds and their family lives often are pretty chaotic and they don't get consistent messaging. They get sometimes quite poor role models in their Absolutely. lives. And so finding just that hook that you can get in, mm. whether they're taking interest in something, it might be literature, it might be music, it might be might painting. Be memes. It could be memes. <laughs> yeah. It could be digital. <laughs> digital or a hunky nut. That's right, or a hunky yeah. nut. <laughs> it could be digital creativity yeah. Or, yeah. or playing eSports, which is a really yeah, big one these absolutely. days. You know? And I think um, that's the key, and, and you used a word there, Craig, that I say so many times it probably drives people crazy, but it's relationships. And, and if you can establish a positive relationship with a student, then um, that is just such an advantage uh, and that connection can encourage the child to go to school, to feel good about themselves. Um, but I think one of um, our society's biggest challenges is to shift the focus of success from academic success to being mentally healthy mm -hmm. um, and to understand that when children finish year 10 or 11 or 12, that most importantly, they have good mental health. Um, you can become academic at various stages of your life, but even if you're academically successful, it does not mean that you will be happy. Mm. Um, and it does not mean that you'll contribute to a society um, in a way that is kind and generous and empathetic. And what we really need is for children to um, understand their value and their worth regardless of how they achieve academically and to encourage and support children to uh, advance their skills, whatever they may be, 
um, and not be so obsessed with academic achievement. And I can say that I'm a university lecturer, um, <laughs> but I, I come from a disadvantaged background and um, I think um, working my way through school and being one of the few students to go to university was good and it was definitely a teacher. Thank you, Steve Martin. Um, his name, yes, is Steve Martin. Um, funny guy. <laughs> uh, he's a lovely guy and he was my English teacher and he made me feel like I could go to university. And so I was the first person in my family to go to university. And um, it made such a difference but university is not everything and it's not right for everyone. And I think it's really important to understand that for some people, um, they're never going to be uh, academically gifted um, and successful. And that's okay. You know, we, as long as we can ensure these people are advantaged as much as those who are academically gifted. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've met many examples of people in my life that haven't done higher education yeah. at all who are some of the most brilliant and knowledgeable people in their field, you know, in terms Absolutely. of they might be mechanics or yeah. they might have worked in the hospitality industry yeah. or, you know, those sort of things. And so, yeah, I think I think the world is going that way. You know, a lot of, a yeah. lot of the people who are successful and, you know, wealthy around the world now that aren't um, academically trained or just qualified. just taken their own path. Yeah. And it's the path that they wanted yeah. to take and has helped them. That's and right. I think what we do need to do is as a community encourage parents to understand that mm-hmm. because um, I think that's where a lot of the pressure for schools comes from is from parents who want to see their children achieve well and if their child does not achieve well then um, the school has done something wrong. Now we know quality of teaching is associated with um, learning, but that does not mean that um, if a school, if a child is not doing well, that it's the fault of the school, and that if we're putting so much pressure on schools to uh, achieve the highest ATAR average, then that's actually at cost of of um, students' mental health. I feel, mm. and I think their social development as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Speaking to someone who went to a same-sex school. Hey, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would definitely, if I had kids, I would never send them to a same-sex school these days. Like just mm. from my own experience, but yeah, yeah. That, that yeah, that's interesting because also same-sex school. But I think there's there's a lot of difference between all girls and all boys schools. Um, but having said that. Uh, this is getting a bit, ooh. Um, but I, I don't know whether I'd separate them out or not. A lot of the research, I think, supports having girls or boys separate. I don't remember which mm-hmm. one. But, um, yeah, I think it can definitely be at the cost of some mental health, particularly for girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of cattiness and <laughs> competition, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've observed through others yeah. Yeah, issues around self-image and that sort of thing coming mm-hmm. out of all girls' mm-hmm. schools. Which... And I think that's where, um, you know, obviously some people want their children to go to single-set schools, but encouraging um, single-set schools to also become trauma-informed and understand some of the issues that are um, individual to same-sex schools and work out what can we do to mitigate, um, you know, if there are issues of self-image, okay, what can we do to actually try and change this culture in our school? And really, ultimately, what we want and encourage is that schools have a really positive nurturing culture. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what type of schools they are. And um, I had the the advantage or... um, benefit of going up to Geraldton recently and I met um, a principal and some teachers at a school called the Flexible Learning Centre and they are a care school who help um, children who've experienced um, quite a lot of adversity um, and who are disengaged and the strategies they use um, to support these children are just wonderful and amazing. They understand the children. They're trauma-informed. They um, have a chef who cooks meals, um, lunches for the kids, and the teachers eat lunch and breakfast with the children. They have meetings. (laughs) Um, They've got washing machines. Now, I'm not suggesting that every school needs this. Obviously, that's not possible. Mm. But the feel when you get into this school is the care and compassion 
and that they won't give up on these children. And that is vital Mm -hmm. for children who are disengaged and quite, um, who've experienced quite a a lot of trauma is that we don't give up and we persist. And that's what this school is so good at, um, that nurturing environment. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. Speaking of schools, are you able to discuss which schools are participating and, and you know, whether they're using the, um, the resources um, and, and also whether they're part of the research as well? We're about to launch. So um, we're, we haven't chosen the schools and so um, we've got some meetings coming up to uh, find out which schools will be part of the study. So we're unsure at the moment. Um And what we'll be doing as part of the research, however, is to um, look at the school environment. The principals we've turned into a self-assessment instrument, so they actually look at their own environment and um, decide where they fit with each principal, whether or not they feel they've reached it or whether or not they're not even starting on that principal. And then we're going to do some uh, evaluation, process evaluation, where we look at what the school does after we've um, given them the principles and the strategies and then look at what's happened to the school um, after a few months, probably about three months. It depends on um, timing. Of course, now's not a great time <laughs> to start this project. but um, And to try and establish whether or not... Uh, the principles and the strategies and the coaching and PDs is enough support to change the environment. At a later stage, we'd like to see the impact on teachers' stress and on children's mental health and the culture of the school. But this is just the start um, and it's just really seeing does this concept work? Is it um, beneficial? Is it producing what we want it to produce? And we've got some independent schools as well who are going to come on board so that we've um, got a quite a wide range of schools to see where it might work, where it might not work. And we've got um, some high SES schools coming on board, um, the independent schools as well. So, mm-hmm. And what the nuts and bolts of the research, how what what are your main outcomes and how are you going to measure them and who who's going to be involved in measuring them? Is it your team or are they doing it at the school yeah, themselves? Yeah, no, we will be um, doing it. But again, it's going to be some self-assessment in those principles. So we want to see is have they shifted? Is their self-assessment um, better? Have they started to reach um, a more advanced level or alignment with these principles? Do they align more to the principles once we've assisted them? Um, the other thing is there's a questionnaire um, for school champions. So we're going to ask the schools to identify champions who will give extra coaching to, to help them, encourage them to change their um, uh, their environment to be trauma-informed. Um, and then um, we'll look at their perception and understanding of um, a trauma-informed school before and after. A lot of the research will be qualitative um, because this is a really difficult area to measure. Cult- we're measuring culture and, and that's mm. really hard. We're really looking at... Um, perceptions um, within an environment and practices within an environment that's extremely complex um, and changeable. We have teachers that change. We have um, teachers who are relief teachers. We've got um, environments that are very uh, responsive to what's happening. So it's not a randomised control trial. And no. <laughs> ideally we'd love to have some control schools, but... Um, we're not going to do that at this stage. It's, that's something for the future and we're hoping to um, make this bigger and better um, and, and keep going forward and, and really see is can we um, really change schools to be trauma-informed and, and make a difference to these children's lives. Yeah, and um, something that we actually haven't mentioned yet is what are the principles? <laughs> <laughs> 
You're not going to ask me to repeat them, are you? <laughs> Just generally. Okay, the first one and, and probably the most important, we've got four overarching principles. And the first one is that schools put children first and foremost. Um, you, they put their safety um, first and foremost. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute and we're not suggesting that teachers um, and parents' needs aren't important. They are. And we need healthy teachers and parents to support our children. But when there's competing um, uh, perspectives or needs, we need to put children first. They're the most vulnerable. They are completely reliant upon uh, schools for their welfare. Parents put children into school um, is compulsory in, in Australia. And so you are providing your child to a school in the hope that they are going to offer this child the best they possibly can. Unfortunately, because we don't have a trauma-informed society, there's pressures to do things differently. And I myself am guilty of this when my children were at school. If they were hurt... I wanted the child that hurt them to um, be suspended, mm-hmm. and um, that was that was sort of my um, approach. But what I think is really important is that we um, know that my pressure to the school to suspend the child should not be um, the factor that makes the school decide what to do. It actually needs to be the school's decision um, with their expertise and knowledge based on what's best for that child. And sometimes a child does need a break from school where they um, are given time to reflect and think before they can get involved in a conversation about what they um, may have done that um, has hurt others, for example. But um, So you get a lot of pressure um, or schools get a lot of pressure from other Uh, experts in the schooling system who are not so expert. I certainly wasn't an expert. (laughs) And um, to know that uh, it's really the needs of the kids that they need to put first. Um, Another principle is that the school demonstrates and models compassion and generosity and empathy. And I think that's what we want as a whole society. The other one is about social and emotional learning. And um, the last overarching um, principle is um, what I mentioned earlier about ensuring you incorporate the First Nation um, of the land on what the school sits, their experiences and culture, and ideally start learning some of their languages. That would be so cool. I would have loved to have learned some Indigenous Same languages here. as a kid. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huge um, thing that should happen. Yeah. And the other 10 principles um, are around uh, other strategies or um, themes that the school can um, start to look towards uh, to ensure that they're responding well to children who've experienced trauma and adversity. And a lot of those principles are really best practice principles that schools do already. A lot of schools will be doing many of these um, or aligned with many of these strategies. Um, It's just that there's some areas where schools may need to strengthen and uh, reflect and and think, okay, well, maybe we could be doing this better. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're hoping schools will do. The thing about this, you know, we call it a program but it's not really a program it's a framework or a model where schools decide on where they need to make changes and if they need to make changes they might do a self-assessment and go we are good on all of these and fantastic if that happens but um you know that's pretty unlikely and there's usually areas for growth so we just want to schools to reflect and think about what they could do um to align with these principles. But the other thing is it's very much place-based. Um, so it depends upon the environment, uh, the socioeconomic status of the school, the um, the cultures within the school, the mix of cultures. Where it is. <laughs> yeah, whether or not it's just a single-sex school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, the idea of this um, model was that it um, was – uh, it's the school who makes any changes. We don't go in and tell the school what to do. We don't go in and assess their environment and say, yep, you're trauma-informed. We go in and we give them advice and support and some trauma-informed practice principles. Mm. So this area is highly politicised. It's probably, <laughs> along with justice and health, the most 
one of the most politicised um, areas of society, I'd say. Now, you obviously believe you know, greatly in what you're doing and, and there's a number of people who agree with you and are on the same page. How are you going to get the buy-in from the community? Because I feel like that's where this is going to um, be driven from in the long term. Obviously, in the short term, your, your project's up and running. But for this to become a, a permanent fixture in schools and something that we're taking into consideration all the time, where do you feel like you need to get that support so that mm. our politicians listen, for example? I can just imagine also some um, parents who don't realise that their kids may be experiencing some form of trauma going, oh, no, that's not happening in my mm. home. No, 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 no. I think um, one thing um, that we do need to ensure is that um, the community do come along. And one of the principles principles is that the school um, works with the community to help identify and um, respond to trauma. So we're not expecting schools to do this alone. We um, encourage them to find services within their system, external to the system to help them, help them um, work out how they can help children who've experienced trauma. But also um, to help educate the community about the impact of trauma so that uh, the community are learning at the same time why these children may be responding the way they are, why they may be self-harming, why they may be um, acting aggressively um, and and um, displaying violence. And so if we can get that message out into community uh, as well as in the schools, then we are doing um, – we're getting some inroads into getting this research knowledge out into practice and policy. And this is based on research. You know, this is not just something that I'm making up, um, you know, someone who's experienced trauma, um, you know, they're going to be in- impacted. It's not just my opinion and expert opinion. There is some really strong research that this is true. And we really need to act on this evidence. It's been around for a while and it's building. Um, we have so much knowledge in this area that we as a society have not done well in addressing. As far as influencing policy, government policy, um, I guess one of the best things we can do is demonstrate that this works um, and that actually you can get some really good changes. Um, And so that's what we'll be hoping to do. Um, Like I said, a lot of trauma-informed practice strategies haven't been evaluated. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence and, um, you know, people's reports and schools' reports and there's plenty of case studies and a few internal evaluations that demonstrates the the positive impact that um, having a trauma-informed school has on children um, and teacher stress. But until we get some rigorous research around this, um, it's hard to uh, lobby and advocate for this. So um, we can give government uh, the evidence, um, but that doesn't always impact policy, unfortunately. I mean, ideally what we'd have is policies um, that that uh, health, etc., make based on evidence. And at the moment, unfortunately, we don't. Yeah. I reckon you could probably, like, if you get some good um, positive data about reducing mental health in, in kids and all that kind of stuff, I reckon you could project and model that out to when they reach the workforce and then how that influences their kids. And then the biggest thing would be putting a cost to it. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Look, an economic evaluation of the impact of schools being more trauma-informed that then impacts community as well, I think we would um, find some amazing results. We know mental health is a massive economic burden for our, for Australia and, in fact, many Western countries. And we, we think a lot about the Band-Aid strategies um, and helping people with mental health problems once they've emerged. Um, but if we can try and prevent at an earlier age some of these problems, then um, we're in such a better place. Uh, prevention is so important to invest in. But unfortunately, we do invest in um you know, intervening once someone is unwell and we need to remain invested in that as well. So mm. um, it, it is a difficult beast, I guess, but it's something that we um, 
you know, as a society do need to be thinking about. And sometimes it doesn't cost more money to be trauma-informed. It, it really doesn't. It's mm. just how can we get this evidence out there in a way that is understood and listened to because the public and teachers do not read journal articles. No. <laughs> so we actually need to um, get this evidence spread in a way that um, helps people understand. Yeah. I, I think the parents are the, the key stakeholder in this because they're, they're the ones who are going to vote, essentially, and they're yeah, going to hassle yeah. their MPs and that sort of thing if they think it's working. So, yeah, yeah so that's a, an yeah, area of focus. I, think, I reckon if you could convince the parents that um, even if it doesn't apply to their kid, their kids are in classrooms with other kids that have um, issues with trauma and all that kind of stuff mm. and misbehaviour and really even if it is focused on um, kids that have experienced those things, the whole classroom actually benefits from it. Yep. Um, so that Absolutely. could be, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's really important that we understand that trauma-informed schools don't just help kids who've experienced trauma. It helps all of the children understand behaviour. Mm-hmm. And if we can understand behaviour, we can respond better to behaviour and ensure that our responses are appropriate and aren't um, in our own emotional regulation um, issues that we might have ourselves. We're probably getting towards the end of our chat, I'd say. Um, Now, this is a project which I, from the literature you sent me, looks like it involves a few partners. Is that right? Yeah, we've got a few partners on board. Um, We've got NEMI, um, which is um, Mental Health um, Suicide Prevention um, Organisation. So we've got um, their Suicide Prevention Coordinators in WA on board, so they're supporting. Um, And we've got Curtin University. We've got some academics from Curtin and... Edith Cowan University, as well as us at UWA. Um, but we've also got a lot of uh, buy-in by practitioners who have been helping us and supporting us through a, a sort of community of practice where we meet every few months. Um, and um, they're people who are psychologists who work in schools and leaders, and they help guide this project. It's thanks to their advice and input that this has been possible and so we've basically developed this really from those consultations and, and from the um, practice community so that uh, this is all based on what we're hearing um, will help schools. Um, so we are going to be seeking um, other partners. We really want to expand um, who we have um, supporting us and also who we can help advise as well. So we don't see this as a, a single um, strategy with one organisation. It, it, we want it to be um, engaging with services and as many stakeholders as as we can get on board. So I'll be emailing some um, services <laughs> soon. <laughs> okay. And uh, so what's next for the project and and so th- I'd like to refer to it as this stage of the project because I'm hoping that this will be an ongoing concern once this initial um, grant, if you like, is run out, that you know something gets extended or you, mm. you get something new to help support the next um, stage. But when does this stage of it finish? Look, we're sort of um, we're anticipating it'll finish at the end of next year. Um, of course, COVID has affected um, the start time of it. Um, beyond that... <sighs> Yeah, we're seeking grants, so I'm rapidly <laughs> writing um, some grant applications at the moment um, and we're hoping to get some funding to help support rolling it out in uh, other states and, and this, univer- um, this Australia-wide approach. But um, it's not the sort of thing that receives traditional funding. It's, you know, where does it belong? Who's going to fund it? Mm. Um, and that's where I think the difficulty lies is... Um, is it health? Is it education? Um, it, it's really public health, but it also um, crosses many other disciplines. So it's a bit hard to um, encourage people to um, support uh, a strategy that's that's quite different. It's a different way of approaching public health. It's a different way of, of um, intervening. 
Yeah. And and I think that makes it a little bit more difficult. I think the biggest challenge is the fact that a lot of the benefits of this aren't going to be seen for some years down the track. Um, Absolutely. And so, you know, if you get health money, they want to see results. If you get education money, they want to see results. But potentially the mental health sector is where the biggest results might be in terms of savings in the future. Mm-hmm. But And the other issue is that public health itself is a new thing um, that is very multidisciplinary. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think... Because of COVID, I think people know what public health is. But before that, yeah. very little understanding. Yeah, I'd say yeah. epidemiology is a far better, well, hey. under, better understand <laughs> term today than yeah. it was um, 12 months ago. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I think um, this does cross di- disciplines, um, this, this area of research. You know, we've got social workers on board, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, youth workers, education specialists. So we, it is a very multidisciplinary approach to public health. And, um, you know, I think it's it's probably the way of the future when you're talking early, inter- early prevention as well um, is to actually think about how can we get all this knowledge from all these disciplines together and actually do something that will um, have a really good impact. Mm. But I agree, Craig. I think, um, you know, it's not going to be seen immediately. And um, if we could shift the approach, I think the impact in 10 years' time would be amazing. I see this as a generation shift. I know that I've got, if I live for another 30 years, which I hope (laughs) I do, but I've got another 30 years working on this at least. And and Mm -hmm. I think... um, you know, it's, it's like corporal punishment in schools where it takes a while to get a change happening. Mm-hmm. And, and once it happens. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's good. Now, Karen, I know that this project has been stressful and uh, challenging so far <laughs> at times, but I commend you for sticking Thank at it. You. Yeah, it's definitely a, a worthy project, I think, because, yeah, it can affect... Yeah so many people thank you and thank you for coming back and talking yeah. about it and we hope to get you back in another year to tell us what happened Insane in the next all successful. <laughs> ah, look, uh, thank you so much for having me i um i'm obviously very passionate about this and you know with the challenges that we face with um a project like this and um you know the struggles and difficulties even getting it started i just try and remain focused on what we want which is um just to help young people who are disadvantaged yeah thanks very much for your time yeah thank you the meaning of health podcast is produced with the support of the school of population and global health and the education enhancement unit at the university of western australia the podcast is produced by craig cumming and courtney weber with music by craig cumming